Amen. Thank you, choir. We're going to do that song again in September when we get to John chapter 16 where that text is found. So just keep that in your pocket there. We're going to pull that one back out, man. Morgan and I sang that song in youth choir at uh, Birmingham, I guess, when we were in youth choir together with our students. Trey, you should join the choir. We get a youth choir together. You're in the youth, youth band, so I guess that counts. But uh, what a great promise of hope that Christ has given us, that he's overcome anything that we go through. In this world, we do have tribulation, and we have black ice in the parking lot and things like that. We have cancer. We have poverty. We have injustice. We have a, a government that's shut down. We have all kinds of tribulation, but we can take heart and be of good cheer knowing that Jesus Christ has overcome all of it, that he is the victor. He has conquered death in the grave forever and ever. So today we're going to continue in our series in the, the Gospel of John. I've never done this before, but thanks to Alan Wharton and uh, some others who I actually got a little eager in our uh, text for last week and, and, and went ahead and, and preached into this week's message. So we're going to have a chance to go back and revisit some of the truths from the text from last week, which I'm actually very grateful for because it didn't really give me time to adequately unpack all that was there regarding discipleship. And that's what this whole year is going to be all about. So we're going to actually do something I've never done before. We're going to go back and cover part of the passage that I preached on last week because I think it's essential. If we're going to get discipleship right this year, then we're going to need to talk about this a little bit more, not just skip right over it kind of like I did last week. And we're, we're, remember that we're in this series for the month of January about more than meets the eye. We're looking at these vignettes from Jesus' first week of public ministry where things aren't as they appear to be. Uh, you know, life is like that. My mom always said, don't judge a book by its cover, right? And our men's basketball team found this out last week. We, we're, we started out 0-1. We had a rough game the first week. We, I thought we should have won it, but we, we lost a close game. And the second week, I was optimistic because we walked into the gym and they only had five guys, the opposing team. And yes, one of them was kind of tall, but I thought we can take them, man. These guys, they look a little bit older. Our team, I'm the oldest guy in our team by like 10 years. So I was like, I think we, we got a chance here. And we get in the game, and, and this guy I'm guarding is actually about six foot seven, and uh, just completely imposed his will on our team and scored whenever he <laughs> wanted to, and we got blown out by about 30. So uh, that was a, not as they appeared to be. They didn't appear to be in great shape, and I kept saying, they're going to get tired, guys. Just keep running. They're going to get tired. They never did, apparently. And we did, and we had seven guys. So... Uh, Things aren't always as they appear to be. And as we talk today, I, we're going to remember that when Jesus started out, he was this young rookie rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher and a Jewish leader who did not appear to be uh, an incredibly impressive rabbi. And when these disciples saw him and when John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, I'm sure the reaction of many of the disciples of John were, Really? Really? Is this the Lamb of God? Looks like a homeless man who's wandering the desert. You want us to follow this guy? But it turned out to be so much more than what met their eye. So if you'll stand this morning in honor of God's Word, I'm going to reread John 1, verses 35 through 42, an incredible text about what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. 
Verse 35, the next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Again, in, in 2019, we're going to be spending this whole year in the Gospel of John. And like I said, we'll be in John chapter 16 in September. And we're going to finish the Gospel in November as we begin a new Advent series in December. And the whole point is to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus more intensely to learn to follow Christ as our Lord and Master and Savior more nearly and more dearly throughout this year. We think that's where the Lord is leading our church to begin uh, as we start a new vision and a new future and a new direction for our church. So uh, let me recap where we've been in these preaching series since I started. Before I was even the full-time pastor here in January of 17, I asked the staff if we could launch a year-long series from Genesis to Revelation and preach through the Bible as we asked the church to read through the Bible on a daily reading plan, and everybody said, go for it, and I thought that was a great idea until I realized that we were going to be in Revelation in December at Christmas time, but it worked out by the grace of God. It was pretty cool, actually. And then this past year, in 2018, we really focused on the essentials of what it means to be a healthy church, to be the body of Christ. We, we spent the first two months in Ephesians looking at the blueprints that God gives us for what the church is supposed to be built like and built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then we spent a month in March just praying together. We had a prayer guide that many members from our church wrote along with our staff and just spent a month discerning where God would have us to go. And then we launched a five-month series, which at the time seemed really long, and now it doesn't seem so bad. Uh, on, in the month of April, we started on worship. We talked about the purposes of the church. And then in May, we talked about evangelism. And then in June, we talked about discipleship for just a month. Now we're going to do it for a year. And then in July, we talked about fellowship. And then we finished in August. We concluded with a series on ministry. And then we started this 12-week series on the Apostles' Creed that the core doctrines of our faith, like Trey said, our orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxy. Getting our doctrine right will lead to getting our practices right. And now we're going through this amazing gospel of John throughout this this year, and I hope you're starting to see some some vision and and some direction as we're going to be rolling that out more and more as we head into 2020. 20 for Woodmont Baptist Church. I'm so excited about it. We're, we're planning out our budgets right now and all of our, our deacon nominating pro processes and our ministry teams. And I, I would ask you guys to, to just pray about the future of our church and pray about where you can get involved, 
where, where the Lord can utilize your God-given gifts and talents and abilities to help serve His body, the church. So again, all about discipleship this year, and last week we, we talked about this passage, and I pointed out what seems pretty obvious at first glance here, that disciples of Jesus are being made. And I, I mentioned just briefly that, that making disciples is the purpose of the church. That's a huge statement to make. And I don't want to just gloss over that. And we, we talked about this some in staff meeting on Tuesday. When I say that making disciples is the purpose of the church, you may say, now wait a minute, Nathan, I've heard you say things like, like we're here to play our part in God's redemptive purposes for the world. That our mission is God's mission, the missio dei is our mission as well. And that's true. That's, that's all true. But our mission in the Missio Dei is to make disciples. We're going to accomplish the mission of God by making disciples of Jesus Christ, not disciples of John. You see John telling his own disciples, this is fascinating to me. We don't get this in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but we know that at least some of Jesus' disciples were actually first disciples of John the Baptist. They were followers of this wild man in the desert. And then John the Baptist said, no, 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 stop following me. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that you need to be following. He's the one that I've been getting you ready to follow. And now he's here. It's time to follow that guy. He takes the focus off of himself. We're going to see that in a, a few weeks in chapter 3 where he says, I must decrease and he must increase. He puts the focus where it needs to be on the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. So these two guys, and I, I mentioned last week Andrew, and, and the other one's probably John, the writer of this gospel, although he's not named here. They start to follow Jesus, it says. And the, the Greek word that's used for follow here is akalutheo. It's the same word that's used in all four gospels to describe the disciples of Jesus. They are first and foremost followers of Christ. They are followers who've given up their vocations, their entire livelihood. They've left their families even to, to wander from town to town and follow this rabbi whom they believe to be the one who will give their lives meaning and bring order and purpose to their lives now and forever. In order to understand what it means to follow a rabbi, we really need to understand what the first century Jewish in, in the ancient Near East system of education looked like. I've mentioned this before, but I want to briefly just go over it so you understand what we're talking about when we talk about discipleship. When, when Hebrew kids were five or six, boys and girls actually in the region of Galilee where Jesus was from, they entered Hebrew school. They were sent to basically like elementary school. It was the synagogue school. The, the synagogue had a school attached to it. And what's so cool is they would show up on the first day and the most respected man in the whole town, the rabbi, would greet them at the synagogue entrance with a tablet, a slate tablet on, on which to write. They would learn to read and write in Hebrew. And he would take their tablet and he would go around and he'd put a dollop of honey on each tablet. And then he would read from the Torah. He would take the old scroll out and open it up and read usually the, the, the great commandments, the Ten Commandments. 
And as he would do so, he would instruct the pupils to lick the honey off of their slate. And he would quote from Psalm 19, God, your rules are sweeter than honey. That's, that's how they instill the sweetness of God's commandments in these kids. And the goal wasn't just to read and write Hebrew, but it was to memorize the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They would memorize it from Genesis to Deuteronomy, completely word for word memorized. Even today, if you go to a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you'll see the kids read from Hebrew with the little pointer thing. They're not really reading. They have it memorized. It's part of their tradition. I think that's a really important tradition. I'm grateful that that I'm in a, a group of guys right now that are memorizing one or two verses every week as we try to memorize scripture. That's not going to get us to the entire Torah anytime soon, but we are putting it in our heads and in our hearts. So imagine this. So the, the kids would, would be teaching, learning all this Hebrew from the entire first five books of the Bible until the time they were 12 or 13. And at that point, Girls were done. Their education was over. They were going to work in the house. And guys, they were going to be apprenticed to their dad. They would take on the family trade. Just do whatever their dad did. That's what the point was. Unless they happened to be the best of the best at Hebrew school. Those really sharp kids who had every single word of the Torah memorized were allowed to go on to high school, basically. Kind of the secondary education. So the the first stage was called Beit Sefer, it's called House of the Book. And then if they, they went on past their bar mitzvah, they would have a bar mitzvah at 12 or 13. Bat mitzvahs weren't a thing until recently. But they would have a, a bar mitzvah and after that sacred milestone, those that were the exceptionally adept would go on to Beit Midrash, which means House of Study. They would learn the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Nebaim, the Ketuvim, the, the prophets and the writings as well as the Torah. 39 books memorized in three years. They would be expected to memorize Genesis to Malachi. Actually, the Hebrew Bible ends with Second Chronicles, but uh, the way it was arranged was different, but 39 books, the same as ours, completely memorized. And, and what was great about that was at the end of that time, they were a little more knowledgeable. They had a secondary education. But of those who finished Beit Midrash and who completed that course of study, again, the best of the best were invited to apply for an apprenticeship as a rabbi. If they wanted to continue rabbinical studies at age 15, they would go find a rabbi and they would say, I, I want to be a rabbi. I want to follow you as a disciple to learn what you do and learn who you are in order not to just know what you know, but in order to be what you are, a rabbi, most respected person in the village. And the rabbi would say, okay, great. Quote to me Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, go. And they would have to just spit it out. And he'd say, okay, what does Rabbi Hillel say about that? Okay, what does Rabbi... And, and they would quiz them on all these different external interpretations of scripture and different schools of thought and, and different doctrinal issues and textual variants and all these things that they would just grill a potential uh, disciple on. And if that kid just nailed it and he got it all right, the rabbi might just say, okay, you can be my disciple. And he was called a, a Talmud, a disciple, a follower. 
And each rabbi would have a group of Talmudim followers that would, would, would literally follow them from town to town as they went and taught in the synagogues around the, the Galilean region and into Judea. And what was crazy about that is they would literally, the Talmudim would walk behind their rabbi and they would attempt to put their feet into the actual footprints where the rabbi walked. There are, we have historical records about rabbis who had a limp and you'd see this group of Talmudim limping down the road like their rabbi, attempting to walk exactly like their rabbi walked. If the rabbi was five foot two and the Talmud was six foot two, he would take smaller steps trying to walk exactly as his rabbi walked. Again, because the goal was to be what they were, a wise and virtuous leader in the community. So when Jesus calls these disciples, when he invites them to come and see, to, to follow him later, he, he tells Philip to follow me. What he's actually staying, saying to them is, you can be like me. You can learn what I learn. You can actually become like me. He's already a rabbi at this point. You know, Jesus probably flew through Beit Midrash, Beit Sefer, because the words that he was speaking were his own. We know that the revelation of Scripture was given by the Logos, the Word of God. I bet Jesus was a pretty phenomenal student. We know in Luke chapter 2, we see him as a boy just teaching in the synagogue and blowing everybody away as a 12-year-old. We know that all these words he was memorizing were all about himself and inspired by him. So Jesus is, is talking to who? These are fishermen. They've already flunked out of Beit Sefer or Beit Midrash. They've already been apprenticed into the family business of fishing in Galilee. They're not the best of the best. These guys are not the cream of the crop when it comes to theological education. And Jesus says, you guys are it. You guys are the ones I want to follow me. Man, that gives me great hope, because I was not the best of the best. Recently at Bill Tyree's funeral service, at his graveside service, he was a member of our church, and sweet Annabelle, his wife, has been a member here for many years. And there was a lady who looked familiar at the graveside, and she said, you from around here? And I said, yeah, I went to Franklin High School. She said, that's where I know you from. I said, Miss Tyree. She said, yes. I said, I remember you. I never had you because I wasn't smart enough. <laughs> I was never in geometry honors, which she taught. I was in the regular class. And I remember feeling like I wasn't the best of the best. I didn't have Miss Tyree because I wasn't a great student. But this shows me that there's hope for those of us who are not the best of the best. That Jesus still calls regular people from regular classes as well as honors classes and remedial classes. He calls everyone and says, you can be like me no matter what kind of student the world says you are. You can be a part of what I'm doing. You can learn from me and eventually you can be like me. And these guys don't have a clue what they're really getting into, right? I, I mentioned last week how Peter had no idea how his whole world was gonna be turned upside down literally when he was crucified upside down as a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we see in later in John, in, in this first chapter, it seems like they understand what's going on. We found the Messiah. That's true. That's, that's great that he understands that. 
but we're going to see how they don't get it as we go into John and see over and over again how the disciples just aren't quite understanding what it means that the Messiah is here. It's not even until after the resurrection of Christ that they finally are like, oh, that's what he was saying. It's way later in the Gospel of John where they understand what it means to be the Messiah. And what gives me hope here is that we don't have to know it all to be a disciple of Christ. These guys don't know what they're getting into, but the important thing is that they take that step of faith. They're just following Christ based on where they're at at this point. They're following Christ based on what little they know at this point, and that is sufficient. They don't have to have a graduate degree in theology in order to become a Talmud, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. All they have to do is to, to follow Christ in faith, believing that, that following Jesus is right and good and true and the best way to live. Even if we have a shallow and limited understanding of what this whole Christianity thing is all about, maybe our Bible knowledge isn't so great, the important thing is to say to Christ, I want to follow you. I surrender my vocation, my life, all that I am from my head to my toes and all that I have to you because I believe that following you leads to abundant life now and forever. Like Lee Ellen said, hope for today, tomorrow, and for eternity is found in becoming a disciple of Christ. And it's, it's clear too here that being a disciple of Jesus is not the same thing as being a disciple of John the Baptist. Neither is it the same thing as being a disciple of any other rabbi because Jesus was not just another rabbi. Here's the, the Son of God who teaches with authority because he has divine authority unlike anyone else. It's not like enrolling in a graduate degree program where you finish with the credentials of like, hey, I followed a rabbi for 15 years, now I can be a rabbi. Following Christ is, is pledging your allegiance to a king, the king of Israel, the king of the universe, the king who has come to set up the kingdom of God as the supreme reality, as the supreme good, as the supreme power in this world. Pledging allegiance to Jesus means all other allegiances become secondary at best. I think it's interesting too here that Jesus' first words in the entire Gospel of John are, come and see. No, I'm sorry, his first words are, what are you seeking? Before he says come and see, he says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? I didn't get to talk about this last week, so I'm so glad I get to talk about it this week. These two former disciples of John the Baptist start following Jesus because John the Baptist points them to Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, hey guys, what are you seeking? And it's interesting that he says, what are you seeking, and not whom are you seeking? Because Andrew and John are just like most people today in our culture. The assumption is that they believe that some thing, some what, will satisfy them ultimately. That if only they can obtain something, it, it will complete their desires, it'll give substance to their hopes and to their dreams if only they can get some 
thing. It's what advertising sells us every day. We're bombarded with that lie because it's not a what that's gonna satisfy us. It's a whom. In my doctoral dissertation, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking down these arguments of a philosopher named James K.A. Smith at Calvin College in Michigan, and he says that everyone ultimately has some vision, some idea of what they believe the good life to be. We're all chasing that vision. He, he's building this argument based on St. Augustine's argument. St. Augustine said basically, you are what you love. You are what you love. You become like what you love. The way Franchaka says it is, everyone chases what they love, and you become like what you chase. So if someone's chasing wealth, they're going to appear to be wealthy. They're going to dress nice, drive a nice car, have a nice house. If someone's chasing being attractive, they're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort working on their appearance, a lot of money investing in appearing attractive outwardly. Whatever you're chasing is what you become. I think that's true. For Christians, we believe that the good life does not come from any thing. Again, it comes from a whom. The abundant life, the thriving, flourishing life can only come by fulfilling God's plan for us, His design for us as humans, which is to follow Jesus Christ as a disciple, to lay down our flesh, to lay down our lives, to lay down everything that we have and are to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to be in the way that Jesus goes. So Jesus invites Andrew and John into this full life. Their response is so funny. He says, what are you seeking? And they say, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> they, you played the question game before where you have to ask a question, you have to ask another question. That's kind of what I feel like they're doing here. They, they don't know how to answer, what are you seeking? So they say, where are you staying? And then he issues the invitation, come and see. Again, this isn't about coming and investigating this lovely Airbnb that Jesus is staying in. It's a call to come and to gain insight into the very nature of God himself. It's a call to understand the mind and purpose of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And once they come and stay with Jesus, once they abide, that word for stay means to dwell with or to abide with. When they stay with Jesus, they're never the same again. In fact, they will now go on through eternity abiding with Jesus for the rest of this earthly life and the next. I mentioned last week that we see this, this pattern of making disciples. And if that's going to be our purpose as a church, we need to understand what that means and what that looks like with a little more understanding, a little more intentionality. You know, a few months ago, uh, some of our staff, Richard and Trey and Rachel and Andy and myself, got to attend this conference called Refocus. It was in October. And it wasn't really a conference as much as kind of a workshop for, for churches. And we spent a few minutes with some teaching, and then we were sent to a breakout room where the five of us just prayed and dreamed and brainstormed on a whiteboard for hours. We did this for three days straight, over eight hours a day, and it was awesome. 
It was really exciting. I can't wait to share with you some of the insights that I feel the Lord led us to during that time, but I don't want to just dump it all on you and say, here's our mission, vision, and values, and here's where we're going. That kind of stuff drives me nuts. I'm not a really corporate kind of person. We're the body of Christ. We're not any corporation of this world. So I, I want to be careful with how we do this, but it, it was a powerful experience that I think is going to have a lasting impact on our church and ultimately on our world. So what I want to share with you today is a strategy for making disciples that I feel like the Lord led us to at this conference. And as we move into 2020, we're going to need your input. We're going to need your visioning with us. You're praying with us about the next five years, 10 years, 15 years of Woodmont Baptist Church as we be the church that God, as we seek to be the church that God would have us to be. And we're going to refine what we're hearing from the Lord and that vision that, that we're hearing from God. But we, we spent a lot of time at this conference asking the big questions, what are we doing as a church? Why are we doing it? What's, what's Woodmont here for? And I, I mentioned last week that the guy who led the conference was like, look, you don't get to rewrite the mission of your church. Jesus already gave you the mission of the church, right? To love God with all your heart, that's worship, right? We got these triangles that show us these things, these five purposes, right, Andy? We got that first one that says to, to love God is to, to worship Him. And then to, we get the next one, to the great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's ministry. And then we get the great commission, that's to go and make disciples. That's evangelism. Baptizing them into the body of Christ, that's fellowship, making them a part of the body, and then finally teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught us. That's discipleship. And these five triangles are great. They're great reminders, and I love that the five-month series talking about these as we understand the purposes of the church, but the question that kind of didn't sit with me was, how do they fit together? How do they interact, and how do they connect? How do we fill out the purpose of the church using these kind of triangles, and I think that's what we came to an idea at that conference of how we can do this at Woodmont Baptist Church. So first off, we believe that making disciples has to start with worship. The primacy of worship in all that we do, you know, Richard preached the first sermon in April last year on worship and said, if we get this one right, the rest of them will fall into place, and I think that's true. That worship should drive all that we do. And when I'm talking about worship, I'm not talking about singing songs. I'm not talking about even coming to meetings on Sunday in the church house. I'm, I'm talking about cultivating a passion for God's glory. I'm talking about savoring the supremacy of Christ above all. I'm talking about learning to worship in spirit and in truth everywhere you go every day of your life. I was talking with a church member last week, and he said, I keep thinking about that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and that last phrase in that song says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. He, he's understanding worship, that God's glory makes everything else on earth pale in comparison. I think that's the idea that we need to get to start with. That drives everything else, a passion for God's glory and for who he is and learning to see Christ as supreme over all. 
Worship has to be the fuel that drives our disciple-making strategy or else the rest of it won't make sense. We're just spinning our wheels. All right, next, that leads to discipleship. We're going to emphasize discipleship this year. Growing in Christ, we think that has to be the starting point for us as a church moving forward. That we have to learn to go deeper in our faith. That we can't just keep up the, the surface appearance of plain church. That's not going to help us grow as a church or move us forward. We've, we've got to get plugged in in small groups and, and get serious about Bible study and keeping each other accountable and, and encouraging one another and important, encouraging and, and praying for one another through intercessory prayer. We have to learn to practice spiritual disciplines to cultivate the discipline of prayer and Bible study and Bible reading. And we have to emphasize Bible teaching too, that the, the Word of God is what spurs our spiritual growth as we grow in Christ and grow in grace and become more like Jesus and less like our old selves. And that's going to lead us to ministry. That's going to lead us to serving Christ. Once you grow in Christ, you, like Trey said, you, you learn these things, you internalize them, and then you go and live them. That's loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's getting involved in missions, in ministry teams, in serving both within and without the church, using those God-given gifts and passions to be the hands of Jesus to a world that desperately needs them. And ministry is going to lead us to the, the next leg, which is to share Christ with others. Once you are serving the world and you're using those gifts and talents, it's going to compel you to share the good news, the gospel of Christ. We have found the Messiah. That's good news. That's life-changing news. This world's so full of bad news. What a wonderful thing to say to people. We have found the Messiah. I was talking with Marcus last week, our chairman of our deacons, and he was saying that, you know, I can't imagine how people go through what I've gone through the last month with a, a wife who had cancer come back with the, the loss of, of her parents, the, the hospitalization of his parent all across the pond in Europe. And, and all that he's going through at this stage of his life, he said, how in the world do people manage this apart from a Messiah, apart from the hope of a Savior? We can't manage it. That's why we need a Savior. We are broken people, and we have the opportunity to share that with the world. That's where we make disciples, by inviting them into this this fellowship. That's the next leg. Once we share Christ with others, then we invite them to join the body of Christ in fellowship, to become a part of this thing that we call the church. Church membership, building community, authentic Christian community that's deeper and stronger than family ties even. You know, single people, you're not single. You have a family here, and, and we want to be family to you in a way that goes beyond even what blood relatives mean. We want to provide for the needs of others as we build up the body and encourage it into what God would call it to be. So you see all this beautiful cycle. Here's our application for today. The whole beautiful process of disciple making that I think can really help us as a church. I, I, I know this is kind of heady and it's kind of an intellectual thing to think about how it all fits together, but I, I really believe that this is a strategy that God has given to us that can grow mature believers who are devoted fully to Christ and to his kingdom. And if we can become a church like that, Rick Warren says that a church that takes the great commandments seriously and the great commission seriously will be a great church. I think that's true. 
And I think you can see that there's different on-ramps on here. So today I would ask you, where are you on this cycle, if at all? Are you making disciples? Are you playing your part in this wheel? Are you sharing Christ with others? Are you yourself being discipled? Are you plugged into a small group? Do you have somebody who's praying for you? Do you have someone you can go to and and talk to about spiritual matters, the things that matter most? Are you serving? Are you using your gifts and talents to, to serve Christ? Are you fellowshipping with the body of Christ? Are you in community with the body in a way that sharpens you? Like iron sharpens iron, so one Christian sharpens another. That's all part of God's plan. We need all five of these purposes, and they work beautifully together. Maybe your vision of the good life doesn't include this. Maybe your understanding of what the good life is doesn't involve treasuring Jesus Christ as supreme above all. Maybe you're not ready to leave your family or your business to become a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you know Jesus already, but you're not part of his body. Maybe you have no fellowship with the communion of saints that we sang about and and recited earlier. Maybe it's time for you to get plugged in, to join a small group or or join a ministry team. It's the time to do it. We got a link on our website right now that lists our ministry teams, and you can sign up for where you feel the Lord leading you. The TV ministry team downstairs always needs help too. You know, preschool workers, I always give a shout out for Rachel and and preschool, I have a two-year-old who someone's watching right now, and I'm so grateful that he's not in here and disturbing us. <laughs> Maybe you want to join the women's Bible study. You heard Rachel talk about it, and you say, I need to get plugged into that. Maybe you want to join the men's group Tuesday morning, 6.15. Come on to the chapel classroom at 6.15 on Tuesdays. Everyone's invited. You don't have to know it all to be on this journey. You don't have to be an expert. You simply have to step out in faith and say, Rabbi, where Are you leading? Because I want to go. Where are you dwelling? Where are you staying? Show us, because we want to be with you, and we want to learn to be like you. Let's pray. Our Lord God, who are we that you would call us to be your disciples? Who are are we, as, as gifted as we are, as accomplished as we may be, God, we are dust, that you have breathed life into, and we are so prone to wander, we're so prone to sin that so easily entangles, and yet you have called us to be a follower of you because you believe that you can sanctify us, that you can make us like yourself, that through following you, we can learn to become like you. God, I pray that you would help us to cultivate those spiritual disciplines as we grow in grace this year and become disciples who follow you more nearly, more dearly with a heart that loves you, that treasures you above everything else that the things of this world would continue to grow increasingly dim in the light of your amazing glory and grace. And God, I pray you would help us to love our neighbors. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for believing this myth of scarcity and hoarding things for ourselves when you call us to live generously with an open hand, giving to those at the rescue mission and other places. God, I thank you for the opportunities we have before us to love our neighbors and to minister to those. I thank you for Calvin who drives the bus and picks up our senior adults on Sundays. I thank you for Eddie 
who unlocks the doors of the church early in the morning. I thank you for all those who serve behind the scenes, for Mary Helen who puts the cards in the pew racks. God, no one sees these things but you do. We thank you for the, the many hands that minister in this church and serve you in so many unseen ways. And God, I pray you would help us to share you, to, to share with others. We have found the Messiah. We have good news to share, the best news in the world. We really believe that, God. Compel us to make disciples by sharing the good news with others who desperately need to hear it, who are facing trials that they cannot face on their own apart from the hope of a Savior, the hope of a Messiah. And God, I, help, I pray that you would help us to add to our fellowship, to our body. There's so many souls. I heard 40,000 cars drive by our church every day. How many of them are lost and searching and desperately in need of a a church community, a family of faith that is deeper than blood. We know so many young adults are moving to this city and they're alone and they're lonely. God, I pray they would find fellowship in your body, the body of Christ, the only place that truly gives us spiritual communion that lasts for eternity. God, I pray that you would help Woodmont to be the church that you've called it to be. May we follow you in 2019 and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing old standard hymn for invitation, I have decided to follow Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a church singing it and you're kind of sick of it, but I pray you would hear it with fresh ears today. Don't sing it if you don't mean it. I challenge you to sing it from your heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.